Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. So are you, are you nice and comfortable, Dr. Craig? You're all set up and ready to uh, get started? Yes, I, okay. I am. Right. Um, well, uh, welcome everyone um, and thank you all for coming along tonight. I think we've got a very exciting event on our hands. Um, tonight we're going to start with uh, the talk that's very kindly been re pre-recorded um, by Dr. Craig and uh, we've got permission to play it for you on the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, and then afterwards, uh, we'll break into a little bit of a Q&A and this will give you a chance to uh, put your questions to Dr. Craig um, about the, for, I suppose, about the argument uh, to begin with. And then um, there might be scope to break into some more general questions um, later towards the end of the Q&A session. Um, Dr. William Lane Craig uh, is a philosopher and a Christian theologian um, from Illinois, USA. He's currently a professor in philosophy at Houston Baptist University and a research professor at Talbot University of Theology, uh, as well as having established a very successful um, uh, Christian apologetics ministry, uh, Reasonable Faith. Dr. Craig has written widely on the subject of theology, including uh, books such as Reasonable Faith, um, Christian Truth and Apologetics, on Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision, and uh, the book The Calam Cosmological Argument, where he's argued uh, for and updated and defended the argument, um, which is the subject of our discussion tonight. Um, further, Dr. Craig has publicly deb debated many prominent atheists, um, including Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, and Sir Roger Penrose, um, he could be considered part of a wider resurgence of intellectual and academic approaches to God's existence um, and apologetics, uh, which includes others such as um, Dr. Alvin Plantinga uh, and Dr. John Lennox, um, our very own from the UK as well. Um, first, before we get started, just Dr. Craig, thank you very much for joining us tonight and accepting our invitation. Uh, well, thank I you. I was, I am, and... Uh... Having Scottish ancestry myself, uh, you know, the Craigs are uh, part of the Gordon clan. I, I was delighted to receive an invitation to have this Zoom call with students in Scotland. That's wonderful, then. That's wonderful. Um, uh, before we get started, we we, we'll, we've got your pre-recorded video and we'll get that playing, but we actually had um, Alex O'Connor, a cosmic skeptic, oh. on previously the week before. And you've had some um, conversations uh, with him on his YouTube channel on the past. Um, yes. And, and we'd asked, uh, uh, this is a little bit um, tongue-in-cheek of us, I suppose, but we asked Alex if there was a question he'd like to put to you um, since we're having on. So um, if you're willing, we could put that question to you before we get into the video. All right. Um, so... Uh, Alex recently made a video um, talking about Christianity's biggest um, challenge, and the challenge was um, about animal suffering. And within that video, um, he had um, he um, responded to a, a point that you had made in a debate. Um, it was quite some time ago, and he wanted to know 
it was less of a question. He wanted to know more so um, how your opinions had evolved on this point. Um, at the time, he stated that you, um, you had made the point that animals feel pain, but they aren't aware of it um, as a response to animal suffering argument um, against the existence of God. Um, and he thought that this um, wasn't uh, the right claim to make, that, that actually uh, pain uh, is the essence of feeling. Um, so I have your views around um, uh, the relationship between God and animal suffering since maybe some of these earlier debates evolved recently. Mm -hmm. That's what Alex wanted to put to you. Sure. Well, the problem of animal suffering is certainly one that is emotionally heartrending, especially for people who are animal lovers like myself. And I think that in general, the answer to the problem of animal suffering is the same as the answer to the problem of natural evil, namely that the entire world is under the providence of a sovereign God who knows what suffering to permit in the world with a view toward ultimately achieving his ends of bringing the maximal number or optimal number of people freely into a love relationship with himself. And so I would say that the problem of natural evil and animal suffering in particular is permitted with a view toward God's overriding purpose of uh, bringing people into a free saving relationship with him. And this really makes it difficult for the atheist to put through any sort of argument from evil and suffering because he would have to show that in a world uh, in which there was less or no animal suffering, that an equal number or more optimal number of people would come freely to know God and find eternal life and salvation. And there's simply no way to show that. That is uh, to make probability judgments that are way beyond our ability to make. So that's the fundamental point. But the subsidiary point that he's referring to was one that I got from Michael Murray in his very interesting book called Nature, Red in Tooth and Claw, in which Murray differentiates three levels of pain awareness. The, the lowest level is just sort of stimulus response. If you stick an amoeba with a needle, it, it recoils. There's a response to noxious stimuli. The second level would be the experience of pain, and this would be uh, experienced by sentient animals that have a central nervous system and a brain like horses and lions and dogs and cats and so forth. But what Murray points out is that these sentient animals are not self-conscious persons. Um, they do not have that third level of awareness of saying, I am in pain. And so if you think that animals uh, are not self-conscious persons, then I think you would agree with Murray's point of view here that while animals may suffer excruciating pain, they do not have the awareness, I am in pain, because they are not selves. They do not have a first-person perspective. Um, and that's a viewpoint that's, I think, 
by far the majority viewpoint among evolutionary biologists. And so that really dis diminishes greatly the agony of this problem of animal suffering. It means that animals don't suffer in the same way that we do uh, when we have an awareness, not simply of pain, but a self-awareness, I am in pain. And so that's a real comfort to me to um, have that perspective that Murray lays out. Now, since reading his book, I haven't done any further work or thinking on this subject. Uh, my attention has been focused elsewhere. Um, but so far as I know, uh, that seems to me to be a very plausible account of this three-tiered structure of pain awareness. Well, I, I think that's a, a very interesting response. And I'd, I'd like to also say thank you for responding to it because um, uh, it was a little bit out of the frame of the, the discussion that we had you on for. But I'm, ah. I, hope that, I, hope that, um, I hope that Alex is, uh, uh, finds that just as interesting as a response as I do. Um, yes, if he's interested, I hope he'll read Michael Murray's book. It's a good mm -hmm. read and uh, very, very stimulating. Mm-hmm. Um, well, without further ado, we'll get to the, the, the video prepared for you um, on the Kalam. Um, for any, any of the audience who'd like to ask questions, you can ask during the video as well, and we'll have them scheduled for afterwards. Or afterwards, you can ask as well. The option to ask a question should be at the bottom of your screen. Um, so let's just get this. Um, maybe a second, I'll have to share the video. Um, Hello, go. I'm William Lane Craig. Thank you for the invitation to join you today and talk about the Kalam cosmological argument. Today, I would like to discuss a much neglected aspect of the Kalam cosmological argument, which is the inference to a transcendent cause of the universe. But before I do so, I want to show you a pair of short animated videos that we've developed at Reasonable Faith on the Kalam cosmological argument to make this argument accessible to lay people. So, we'll run those videos at this time. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? This question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. 
The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before all popped into existence. But one by one, these models fail to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Did the universe have a beginning? Or has it existed from eternity past? If it did have a beginning, this raises a question. Did the universe have a creator? In part one, we explored this question scientifically. Now let's look at it philosophically. Aristotle believed the universe was eternal in the past. But Al-Ghazali disagreed. He pointed out that if the universe did not have a beginning, then the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But that's a problem, because the existence of an actually infinite number of past events leads to absurdity. It's metaphysically impossible. Why? The mathematician David Hilbert illustrates the problem by imagining a hotel with an infinite number of rooms, all of which are occupied. There's not a single vacancy, every room in the infinite hotel is full. Now suppose a new guest shows up and asks for a room. The manager says, sure, no problem, then moves the guest who was in room number one to room number two. 
and the guest who was in room number two to room number three, and so on to infinity. As a result of this shuffling, room number one becomes vacant, and the new guest happily checks in, even though all the rooms were already full, and nobody has checked out. And it gets even more of it. Suppose an infinity of new guests show up at the front desk. No problem, says the manager. Then she moves each person into a room with a number twice that of his own room. So the person who was in room number one moves into room number two. The person who was in two moves to four. The person who was in three moves to six and so on. Since any number multiplied by two is always an even number, all the odd numbered rooms become vacant and the infinity of new guests gratefully check in. And yet, before they arrived, all the rooms were already full. It gets even crazier when the guests start to check out. Suppose all the guests in the odd-numbered rooms check out. In that case, an infinite number of people have left the hotel. And yet, there are no fewer people in the hotel. But suppose instead, all the guests in rooms numbered four and above check out. In that case, only three people are left. And yet exactly the same number of people left the hotel this time as when all the odd-numbered guests checked out. Thus, we have a contradiction. We subtract identical quantities from identical quantities and get different answers. These absurdities show that an actually infinite number of things cannot exist in the real world. Here is a second argument Ghazali offers against a past eternal universe. Suppose that for every one orbit Saturn completes around the Sun, Jupiter completes two. The longer they orbit, the further Saturn falls behind. Now, what if these two planets have always been orbiting the Sun from eternity past? Which has completed the most orbits? Strangely enough, the number of their orbits is exactly the same, infinity. But that seems absurd, for the longer they orbit, the greater the difference becomes. If the universe has always existed, then an infinite series of past events has been formed by adding one event after another. It's like a sequence of dominoes falling one after another until the last domino, A, is reached. The problem is that the final domino could never fall if an infinite number of dominoes had to fall first. So today could never be reached. But obviously, here we are. It's today. So the number of events leading up to today could not possibly be infinite. The infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature, nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. What objections might be raised to these arguments? Some people object that, unlike the rooms in Hilbert's hotel, the events of the past don't all exist at the same time. But we can easily tweak the story to get rid of this objection. Suppose the hotel has been under construction from eternity past, one room being added each year. How many rooms would there now be in the hotel? An actual infinite number. So if the past is infinite, that would imply that Hilbert's hotel could exist, which is absurd. Others have objected that an actually infinite number of things do exist, namely numbers and other mathematical entities. 
However, this objection presupposes that numbers really exist. But this is a highly disputed assumption that most philosophers reject. So if Ghazali's two arguments are right, then the universe is not eternal in the past. It must have a beginning. And we know intuitively that whatever begins to exist requires a cause of its existence. Thus, we are led to conclude that the universe has a cause of its existence. So what caused the universe? Atheist Daniel Dennett says, the universe caused itself. But this is incoherent, because in order to cause itself to come into existence, the universe would have to exist before it existed. The cause of the universe must therefore be outside of the universe, spaceless, timeless, immaterial and enormously powerful. Much like God. I've argued elsewhere that we have good evidence from both the expansion of the universe and from the second law of thermodynamics that the universe is not past eternal, but had a temporal beginning. The physicist Paul Davies raises the inevitable question, what caused the Big Bang? One might consider some supernatural force, some agency beyond space and time as being responsible for the Big Bang. Or one might prefer to regard the Big Bang as an event without a cause. It seems to me that we don't have too much choice. Either something outside the physical world or an event without a cause. Now, it might seem metaphysically absurd that the universe should come into being without a cause, and that therefore a supernatural agency is the preferred explanation. But some contemporary scientists have contended that quantum physics can explain the origin of the universe from nothing. Unfortunately, some of these scientists have an outrageously naive grasp of language. The word nothing is a term of universal negation. It means not anything. So, for example, if I say, I had nothing for lunch today, I mean I did not have anything for lunch today. If you read an account of World War II in which it says, Nothing stopped the German advance from sweeping across Belgium. It means that the German advance was not stopped by anything. If a theologian tells you that God created the universe out of nothing, he means that God's creation of the universe was not out of anything. The word nothing, to repeat, is simply a term of universal negation meaning not anything. There is a whole series of words in the English language which are words of universal negation. Nobody means not anybody. None means not one. Nowhere means 
not anywhere. No place means not in any place. Now, because the word nothing is grammatically a pronoun, we can use it as the subject or direct object of a sentence. By taking these words not as terms of universal negation, but as words referring to something, we can generate all sorts of funny situations. If you say, I saw nobody in the hall, the wiseacre replies, yeah, he's been hanging around there a lot lately. If you say, I had nothing for lunch today, he says, really? How did it taste? These sorts of puns are as old as literature itself. In Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus introduces himself to the Cyclops as no man or nobody. One night, Odysseus puts out the Cyclops' eye. His fellow Cyclopses hear him screaming and yell to him, What's the matter with you, making so much noise that we can't sleep? The Cyclops answers, Nobody is killing me! Nobody is killing me! They reply, If nobody is attacking you, then you must be sick and there's nothing we can do about it. In Euripides' version of the story, he composes a very funny dialogue. The Cyclopses say, Why are you crying out, Cyclops? Nobody has undone me! Then there is nobody hurting you after all. Nobody is blinding me! Then you're not blind! As blind as you! How could nobody have made you blind? You're mocking me! But where is this nobody? Nowhere, Cyclops. The use of these words of universal negation, like nothing, nobody, and no one, as substantive words referring to something is a joke. Now, how astonishing then is it to find some physicists whose mother tongue is English using these terms precisely as substantive terms of reference. For example, the physicist Lawrence Krauss has told us with a straight face, there are a variety of forms of nothing, and they all have physical definitions. The laws of quantum mechanics tell us that nothing is unstable. Seventy percent of the dominant stuff in the universe is nothing. There's nothing there, but it has energy. Nothing weighs something. Nothing is almost everything. All of these claims take the word nothing to be a substantive term referring to something. For example, the quantum vacuum or quantum fields. These are physical realities and therefore clearly something. To call these realities nothing is at best misleading, guaranteed to confuse lay people, and at worst, a deliberate misrepresentation of science. Such statements do not even begin to address, much less answer, the question of why the universe exists rather than nothing.
In his review of Krause's book, A Universe from Nothing, David Albert, an eminent philosopher of quantum physics, explains with regard to Krause's first kind of nothing, vacuum states are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. The fact that some arrangements of fields happen to correspond to the existence of particles and some don't is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that some of the possible arrangements of my fingers happen to correspond to the existence of a fist, and some don't. And the fact that particles can pop in and out of existence over time as those fields rearrange themselves is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that fists can pop in and out of existence over time as my fingers rearrange themselves. And none of these poppings amount to anything even remotely in the neighborhood of a creation from nothing. Albert concludes, Krauss is dead wrong, and his religious and philosophical critics are absolutely right. The cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin has a different proposal as to how the universe could come into being from literally nothing. In response to the claim of a supernatural agency, Vilenkin says, Regarding the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem and its relation to God, I think the theorem implies the existence of a rather special state at the past boundary of classical space-time. Some mechanism is required to impose this state. Craig wants this mechanism to be God, but I think quantum cosmology would do just as well. Just what does Vilenkin have in mind here? Well, in his article in the online magazine Inference, he explains, Modern physics can describe the emergence of the universe as a physical process that does not require a cause. Nothing can be created from nothing, says Lucretius, if only because the conservation of energy makes it impossible to create nothing from nothing. And I think that's a misprint here. I think Vilenkin meant to say that the conservation laws make it impossible to create something from nothing. He goes on to say there is a loophole in this reasoning. The energy of the gravitational field is negative. It is conceivable that this negative energy could compensate for the positive energy of matter, making the total energy of the cosmos equal to zero. In fact, this is precisely what happens in a closed universe in which space closes on itself like the surface of a sphere. It follows from the laws of general relativity that the total energy of such a universe is necessarily equal to zero. If all the conserved numbers of a closed universe are equal to zero, then there is nothing to prevent such a universe 
from being spontaneously created out of nothing. And according to quantum mechanics, any process which is not strictly forbidden by the conservation laws will happen with some probability. What causes the universe to pop out of nothing? No cause is needed. Now, I think this is a terrible argument. Let's grant the supposition that the positive energy associated with matter is exactly counterbalanced by the negative energy associated with gravity, so that on balance the total energy of the universe is zero. The key move comes with the claim that in such a case there is nothing to prevent such a universe from being spontaneously created out of nothing. Now, this claim is a triviality. Necessarily, if there is nothing, then there is nothing to prevent the universe from coming into being. By the same token, if there is nothing, then there is nothing to permit the universe to come into being. If there were anything to prevent or permit the universe's coming into being, then there would be something, not nothing. If there is nothing, then there is nothing, period. The absence of anything to prevent the universe's coming into being does not imply the metaphysical possibility of the universe's coming into being from nothing. To illustrate, if there were nothing, then there would be nothing to prevent gods coming into being without a cause. But that does not entail that such a thing is metaphysically possible. It is metaphysically impossible for God to come into being without a cause, even if there were nothing to prevent it because nothing existed. Vilenkin, however, infers that no cause is needed for the universe's coming into being because the conservation laws would not prevent it. And according to quantum mechanics, any process which is not strictly forbidden by the conservation laws will happen. The argument assumes that if there were nothing, then both the conservation laws and the laws of quantum physics would still hold. But this is far from obvious, since in the absence of anything at all, it's not clear that the laws governing our universe would hold. In any case, why think that given the laws of quantum mechanics, anything not strictly forbidden by the conservation laws will happen. The conservation laws do not strictly forbid gods sending everyone to heaven, but that hardly gives grounds for optimism. Neither do they strictly forbid his sending everyone to hell, in which case both outcomes will occur which is logically impossible as they are logically contradictory universal generalizations. The point can be made non-theologically as well. The conservation laws do not strictly forbid something's coming into existence, but 
neither do they forbid nothings coming into existence. But both cannot happen. It is logically absurd to think that because something is not forbidden by the conservation laws, it will therefore happen. Finally, Vilenkin's inference that because the positive and negative energy in the universe sum to zero, therefore no cause of the universe's coming into being is needed, is hard to take seriously. This is like saying that if your debts exactly balance your assets, then there need be no cause of your financial condition. Vilenkin would, I hope, not agree with Peter Atkins that because the positive and negative energy of the universe sum to zero, therefore nothing exists now, and so nothing did indeed come from nothing. For as Descartes taught us, I at least undoubtedly exist, and so something exists. Christopher Isham, uh, Great Britain's premier quantum cosmologist, rightly points out that there still needs to be what he calls ontic seeding to create the positive and negative energy in the first place, even if on balance their sum is naught. Even if one were to concede the absence of a material cause of the universe, the need of an efficient cause is patent. In conclusion, then, we have two independent lines of scientific evidence in support of the beginning of the universe. First, the expansion of the universe implies that the universe had a beginning. Second, thermodynamics shows that the universe began to exist. Because these lines of evidence are independent and mutually reinforcing, the confirmation they provide for a beginning of the universe is all the stronger. Of course, as with all scientific results, this evidence is provisional. As Sean Carroll reminds us, science isn't in the business of proving things. Rather, science judges the merits of competing models in terms of their simplicity, clarity, comprehensiveness, and fit to the data. Unsuccessful theories are never disproven, as we can always concoct elaborate schemes to save the phenomena. They just fade away as better theories gain acceptance. Science cannot force us to accept the beginning of the universe. One can always concoct elaborate schemes to explain away the evidence, but these schemes have not fared well in displaying the aforementioned scientific virtues. Given the metaphysical impossibility of the universe's coming into being from nothing, belief in a supernatural creator is eminently reasonable. At the very least, we can say confidently that the person who believes in the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo will not find himself contradicted by the empirical evidence of contemporary cosmology, but on the contrary, fully in line with it. 
Thank you for your attention. I'm now happy to entertain your questions. Great, thank you um, so much, Dr. Craig, for sharing that video with us. Um, it's really great to see some arguments that maybe some of us are familiar with um, presented in a bit more detail and um, with the graphics as well. That's uh, really super. Um, because we're a bit short on time, I think we'll just fire straight into some questions. Uh, we do have some questions that have come through on the Q&A. Um, so a good one to start with, I think, um, is coming from Nathan, who is asking, do arguments against an infinite series of past events apply with equal force to an infinite series of future events? And if so, ah. does this cause problems for the notion of eternity in heaven? Mm -hmm. This would depend on your view of the nature of time. If you believe, as I do, that temporal becoming is real, that is to say that things really do come into and go out of being, then the future, even if it goes on forever, is not actually infinite. It's merely potentially infinite. That is to say, infinity is a limit which the series of events endlessly approaches but never arrives at. So there would not be any problem with the futures being potentially infinite, um, and thereby uh, different from the past, which would be actually infinite uh, if it uh, is beginningless. Uh, the next question we have, it's a question from uh, Jordan from the audience as well. And Jordan is, is asking you, um, the best criticism I've heard against the style of argument, uh, this style of argument, sorry, is that there's no reason to personify the cause of the universe as God, ah. uh, much less as the Christian God that we're capable of having uh, a personal relationship with. Uh, all the Kalam argument uh, proves is that there's something beyond our comprehension. Uh, what do you think of this response Jordan is asking? Well, in the first place, this is not an argument for the Christian God. Uh, you notice in the one video, it talks about one of its medieval proponents being the Muslim theologian, Al-Ghazali. So this is an argument from a kind of, for a kind of generic monotheism. And historically, the Kalam cosmological argument has been defended by Jews, Muslims, and Christians, both uh, Protestant and Catholic. So this is an argument for um, the existence of God, not for Christianity. Now, the videos talk about some of the properties that the cause of the universe must have, which already shows that this is an extraordinary being. It, it's something that is beginningless, timeless, uncaused, um, unchanging, immaterial, and enormously powerful. Now, those are already some of the central attributes of God. In my published work, I go on to argue as well, however, that this cause must be personal as well. Uh, and I give three different arguments for the personhood of this first uncaused cause. And so that does definitely then give us um, a God 
uh, like being a personal creator of the universe and not just an uncaused cause. So I would simply say, look at uh, my defenses of this uh, part of the argument in books like uh, Reasonable Faith or On Guard, where I go into the personhood of the uh, uh, uncaused first cause. Thank you very much for that, um, Dr. Craig. We've got a question here um, from someone who um, grew up in Sunday school for many years, but would now class himself as, as an atheist. Um, and they're saying that they attended Sunday school for many years, and throughout that experience, they got the distinct impression that there was a certain aspect of irrationality in the Christian faith. Um, and that was an observation that was evident from many passages in the Bible. So, for instance, Thomas wanted proof that um, Jesus had resurrected um, by touching Jesus' wound. So doesn't this contradict the idea that God is good and personal? Um, wouldn't a good God make faith um, a more rational thing or a more obvious thing to everyone? Oh, well, I, I think that faith is a rational thing. I, I thought he was going to say that faith has to be a sort of leap in the dark that's unconnected to evidence, and I don't think that's the biblical view at all. Um, rather, I would say faith is trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. Faith is trusting in what you have good reason to think is true. And so I'm very interested in looking at the reasons, the arguments and evidence in support of Christian theism. And I think that God has given such evidence to us, uh, both in nature and conscience, as well as in history. And moreover, I don't think God has just left us up to our own devices to work out by our cleverness and ingenuity whether or not he exists. The Bible says that God's Spirit also speaks to the heart of every person, convicting him and drawing him to himself. And so if a person is truly open to God's will, God's Spirit will convict him of the truth uh, and will draw him to himself. So we have both this kind of internal warrant or witness of the Holy Spirit, coupled with this external warrant of the arguments and evidences in support of Christian theism. And that makes faith rational. Right. Um, uh, our next question from the audience, this, this question, they say, um, my understanding of physics is, is very poor, um, but if the universe was on a, a, in a constant cycle of expansion, and collapsing and time began um, at the Big Bang. Does that not mean that you could have other cycles of the universe before time began? And therefore, the universe is eternal while not being eternal at the same time. Not sure if the, the questioner then says, not sure if this makes sense really, um, but it's well, been on its own. Well, I, I think that what he's talking about there are so called oscillating models of the universe or cyclical models where. Every expansion is preceded by a contraction, and every contraction is co preceded by an expansion. So the universe is sort of like a concertina expanding and contracting from eternity past. Now, notice that if the philosophical arguments that we share today are sound, that would be impossible 
because then you would have an actually infinite number of prior oscillations that would have had to occur before the present expansion, which is impossible. But even on a purely scientific level, these oscillating models were tried during the 1970s, principally by Russian cosmologists, uh, and they were shown to be untenable. There is no physics that would cause a universe that is contracting uh, in a state of gravitational self-collapse to reverse course and, and bounce back to a new expansion. Moreover, what scientists discovered was that the oscillating model actually implies the very beginning of the universe that it sought to avoid. And this is because of the thermodynamics of oscillating models that the video also mentioned. Entropy is conserved from cycle to cycle. That is to say, in each cycle, the amount of usable energy continues to go down and down and down. So that if the universe had existed from infinity past, we should now find ourselves in a dead, dilute, dark, and lifeless state. The fact that we do not, that we are still in a state of thermodynamic disequilibrium, where there's still energy to be used, shows that um, the universe has not been oscillating from eternity past. In fact, the cosmologist Joseph Silk, in his book, The Big Bang, estimates on the basis of current uh, entropy levels that the universe could not have gone through more than about 100 previous oscillations. Um, I, I do have a follow-up on that, that point, because that's, that's quite interesting that you mentioned sort of the history of cosmology then, because we had another question of, um, asking, since the cosmology is a, a field of science that's sort of constantly changing, um, mm -hmm. how, how do you feel personally confident um, laying such a, a sort of a clear argument out for the existence of God based on uh, cosmology considering that it is a, a, sort of a, a field of science that's in constant change. Yeah. Well, I addressed that right at the end of my talk. Do you remember the yeah. Yeah. quotation from Sean Carroll, that the results of science are always provisional, and you can always concoct elaborate schemes to try to avoid where the scientific evidence is uh, leading. But as Alex Vilenkin says, there just are no tenable models today of a beginningless past infinite cosmos. And the board guth vilenkin theorem gives reason to think that such models simply cannot be developed. Moreover, you have the independent confirmation from thermodynamics. And so the coalescence of these two independent lines of scientific evidence, I think makes the, the conclusion very probable and, and quite secure. Yeah, thank, thank you for this, um, Dr. Craig. Um, as Richard was saying in the, the introduction, um, you're, you're part of this kind of renaissance of, of Christian philosophy that um, perhaps started around with Alvin Plantinga. Um, yes. And we have a question here um, from Seth asking, what are your hopes for the future of Christian philosophy, um, of religion? Mm. 
what topics do you think need the most attention? Well, my hope is that the renaissance of Christian philosophy will continue to grow, that it will spread in Europe. Uh, we're seeing glimmerings of this already in German philosophy, and that is tremendously encouraging. And I hope that it will touch eventually Scandinavia as well, which is still uh, in the grip of atheistic secularism. Um, I'm hoping that it will begin to expand in Latin America as well, and there are some hopeful sparks of uh, interest there. So I'm hoping that the movement will continue and will grow throughout the world. I also deeply hope that Christian philosophers will remain biblical in their worldview. There's frankly a really great danger when you're doing philosophy independently of a biblical anchor point, because then you can go off the rails theologically uh, if your philosophical speculation is not tethered by scriptural revelation. And so I do hope that Christian philosophers will attempt to achieve um, a kind of synoptic worldview that will take the best of what philosophy has got to offer and the best of what we learn from biblical theology and put these together into an integrated worldview. Based on, on that answer, actually, then this, this second last question that we have is, is maybe quite relevant to Christian philosophers, but it could also be relevant to Jewish philosophers and um, mm. Islamic philosophers as well. You've mentioned that, you know, if you don't have a biblically based um, or just a biblical base, then for your philosophy, it could go off the rails. This question is asking, um, does the argument necessarily imply monotheism? Um, events can have mm. multiple causes. Could the universe have multiple causes, i.e. a pantheon of gods? And so I suppose mm -hmm. this feeds into um, delving into philosophy, but um, yeah. this could lead you in, in other directions. <laughs> right. Here, my appeal would be to Occam's razor. Occam's razor is a principle that states that you are only justified in positing such causes as are necessary to explain the effect. You are unjustified if you multiply causes beyond necessity. And in the case of the origin of the universe, a single transcendent cause is all that is needed in order to explain the universe coming into being. And it would be a violation of Occam's razor to multiply causes uh, beyond the evidence. Okay, thank you very much for that. Uh, our last question is a question that we, we, we ask this to everyone we have on because um, we're the, the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Um, right. And in and, and this context, actually, for me, it's a question that's quite dear to my heart because I grew up in the southwest of Scotland and there's a lot of tension, secular, um, um, sectarian tension in this part of the country. Um, and, and due to that... Um, there's been issues around freedom of speech. Um, as, a, as a philosopher, as a Christian theologian, uh, why does free speech matter to you? Well, I think that it's 
part and parcel of what religious liberty is. Religious liberty entails the freedom of conscience to express and defend your religious views in the public arena. And so any attempts through political correctness or other state initiatives to suppress religious speech is an infringement of religious liberty and ought to be resisted by everyone, whether that person is religious or secular. We need to stand strong together, shoulder by shoulder, in defense of uh, the freedom of speech. Yeah, th thank you for that, Dr. Craig. Um, it's a shame that our, our hour is now up. Um, I wish we, we had more time with you and uh, we could get some more, more questions in, but uh, here we are. Um, apologies about the, the technical glitches at the start. Um, it's kind of the, the first time we've uh, been streaming some videos on, online, so um, a few hitches to, to, to work out, but we got there in the end. Um, well, th thank you for having me on the program today. I really enjoyed the questions. I thought they were excellent questions. Uh, and I hope that our discussion has proved helpful to folks who have uh, joined us. Certainly. I, I, even from a personal uh, perspective, it, it certainly has been a worthwhile uh, hour. And we've, we've, um, I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say that we've, we've uh, yeah, really appreciated your time and um, learned a lot of things from that. Good. Um, just a few things. To, to wrap up with um, this Tuesday, we're, we're lucky enough to be joined by um, Stephen Hicks. He's going to be chatting with us about postmodernism. Um, so that's uh, next Tuesday, which is the 30th. So a bit of short notice, but um, yeah, it'll be wonderful to see, see you all there. Um, and then on Friday, the 2nd of April, we'll be joined by uh, Jade uh, Kulotakis, who will be chatting to us about the uh, the new hate crime bill that's just been passed in Scotland um, chatting to us about maybe some of the problems that that'll present or um, yeah, chatting us through that. So that's Friday the 2nd of April. Um, if I can just extend another thank you to um, Dr. Craig and a thank you to um, everyone for, for joining us. We hope that that's been worthwhile and um, you've maybe had a different perspective on um, sort of philosophical arguments for the um, existence of God. Um, yeah, so without further ado, um, thank you all for joining and have a wonderful night.